0: Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. I'm Peter Moore. In this episode, we're heading back to the boisterous, raucous, revolutionary end to the 18th century. We're looking at an artist whose satirical caricatures defined the political culture of the age. His name was James Gilray. My guest today, Tim Clayton, is a great scholar of Gilray's work and a specialist on the printed images of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. He's also the author of a truly opulent new book on the artist. It's called James Gilray, a revolution in satire. I spoke to Tim just the other day. Can I begin by asking you to explain just who James Gilray was, what his significance in British history is, and what brought you to him?
1: Okay, so James Gilray was an engraver born in 1756. He died in 1815, and He turned from a career where he was probably looking to engrave serious prints riding a boom in the British print market that was taking place towards the end of the 18th century. But he found himself turning to political satire and fashioning a new brand of political satire by bringing caricature, that is, grotesque exaggeration, and allying this to 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 a form of political print that had existed for years that took the piss out of uh, people in power or uh, fashionable personalities. And Gilray found that he was extremely good at this. Uh, other people told him that he was the most brilliant artist who had ever tried this kind of thing. And he became the prime exponent in in this country of this new art partly invented by himself of political caricature. It became caricature during his career and as a result of his activities from having been political satire or political prints before that. And James Gilray had, I suppose, the good fortune in a sense to be working through a really dramatic period in history. His, his earliest printmaking activities took place during the American Revolution as America declared independence from Great Britain and fought for its independence. A lot of people, including Gilray and most of his publishers, were quite sympathetic to the cause of the American colonists and very critical of George III, who they felt had dug in his heels quite unfairly. And then there's a wild period in the 1780s, a period of great excess after the war, uh, the aristocracy having enormous fun, uh, there's great license... The French and English very friendly with each other, a lot of cross-visiting, and Gilray, well, he he indulges in a certain amount of semi-pornographic activity at that period, a lot of criticism of uh, aristocratic excess, which ends in direct... Uh, satire on the on the monarchy, which then coincides w- with the French Revolution. So then he's working through the entire period of the French Revolution, and huge worries from those in power in this country, in 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 England, in Great Britain, that the revolution might spread here. Finally, he's working through the period of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, in the end, he went mad before. The fall of Napoleon and died just before the Battle of Waterloo, so he never knew that it was going to turn out well in the end. From a British patriotic point of view,
0: Mm. so the, uh, I mean, the great verve and dynamism of his work is so powerful that it's almost impossible for. Well, I think of this as someone who's uh, written about the eighteenth century quite a bit. It's hard to differ. It's it's so difficult to look at that period without seeing it through. Gilray's caricatures he he's this kind of great starburst of artistic energy in a way and I suppose when I think of Gilray turning up on the artistic scene in popular culture it's a bit like that moment when television went into color in 1969 it just feels like everything's bright it's exuberant it's over the top it's a bit crass is is this what drew you to him well, I was drawn to him originally
1: as a student of English. I, I got very interested in the combination of word and image that he's playing with, and uh, because he's very verbal, very good at verbal things. Uh, but then, as you say, there, there's the amazing verve of his drawing, wild caricature introduced into political satire, political graphic satire for the first time. It does, uh, it coincides with a moment when, I think probably coincides with the invention of the watercolour palette that makes it easy for anybody to do watercolour. Uh, and suddenly, coloured prints become much cheaper and much more common and the world does go from black and white into colour.
0: Yeah, exactly. And what well, we've got in front of me, on the table now, the most sumptuous book, Um, that you have just finished. It's been published, called James Gilray, A Revolution in Satire. I mean, it's very difficult to do justice to the splendour of this. And it really is, as I say, a great starburst of a book in many ways. Let's talk about print culture, though, at that time, because I think this is the wider context. We're going to to talk a little bit about Gilray's career in specific, pick out a few moments in just a bit. But print shops were quite something. And um, there is a nice... Towards the end of his career Which is called Very Slippery Weather Which I quite like Because in the background he's, he's got one of these print shops Which are full of his own images And there's people pressed up With their noses against the window And there's a sense of, of excitement And gleefulness I suppose I wanted to ask you really How much of a new experience this was In the 18th century So consuming visual images in this way Going to the print shop Well, the print
1: business in London expands enormously during the 18th century. And um, prints are as old as printing. Um, If you want to convey visual information, then you get a copper plate, you engrave it, you print it, you put it out onto the market. So all visual information is, is, is covered by prints. There are portraits, there are landscapes, there's architectural stuff, there's scientific stuff. Almost almost anything is is produced and sold as, as engravings or etchings. But this market had focused on Italy and most recently on France. The 17th century is very much dominated by France. There's an explosion in England in the 18th century First, at the top end, uh, with kind of high art translated into into printed form and made available to a larger number of people, we develop newspaper advertising, which allows people all over the place to know what's going on and to be able to order it. Uh, Subscription publication, a number of innovations that encourage. The, uh, the the expansion of, of the market and the most dramatic thing probably in England is, is uh, the way that this goes down the scale so that high images that are originally for the aristocracy, for the very upper end of society are often mirrored lower down and there's a huge expansion. You know, it's, it's a great period for people teaching themselves and they teach themselves partly through, through the medium of prints and, mm. and um, prints are much cheaper than paintings. They become ubiquitous. And part of this, a small sub-branch of this, is this, this political satire brand. Generally, early on, there are shops that sell news, sell pamphlets, uh, and sell political and topical prints prints of the moment uh, and it's a specific kind of kind of shop during gilray's career these specialist caricature shops become a really vibrant feature of 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 london life there are only about five really big ones really driving it but there are a lot more shops selling selling satirical prints and caricature prints out there, and and the the image that you talked about of Gilray's of very slippy weather showing Hannah Humphrey's print shop is is one, in fact, of an already well-established genre that um, uh, it's the the Bowles family have did, did printed did, uh, views of their shops from about 1770 uh, with with crowds pressing up against them in in St Paul's churchyard. And uh, this becomes a feature of of London life, something treated as a nuisance uh, in a a lot of writing, because pickpockets and all kinds of other bad sorts... the pavements and you can't mm. walk along the pavement because of the crowds outside the print shops.
0: And it's just I suppose it's just a nice image for us as well thinking back today of people trying to make sense of what's going on going down to the print shop seeing what the commentary is. Uh, the other thing we should say about Gilray at this time which is notable is not just the quality of his work but his fearlessness in in a way. I think it was Ian Hislop who said the best satire is when you attack the strong not the weak who were some of I mean, we'll do this quite quickly. But I do want to ask, who were some of Gilray's biggest targets? And we'll probably talk more in in detail about it later on. But who were some of his victims, if you like?
1: Well, he begins with the royal family right at the top. And you
0: hadn't had
1: a lot of direct attack on royalty, I think it is probably fair to say, before Gilray. But at any rate, uh, the king... The Queen, the Prince of Wales, the Duke of York, the Duke of Clarence, five major targets, then the Prime Minister, uh, in his case William Pitt the Younger, for a lot of the period, but also political figures on the other side. Um, various points in his career he would go for one side or the other, but so Charles James Fox. Uh, Edmund Burke, the political theorist and, and right-hand man of Charles James Fox until he changed sides. Richard Brinsley Sheridan, dramatist, theatre owner and also Whig politician is a, is a great target. And then people from society, actors, actresses, uh, there's a range of society ladies he picks on over and over again. It relies on these people having faces that are known because it, it, to recognise them, you, you generally, at any rate, you know, gradually you come to know their, their facial features. So you have to have portrait
0: formulae. One of his most famous victims is Napoleon Bonaparte. This idea that we have of uh, La petit corporal today, is that down to Gilroy to quite some extent, do you think?
1: Well, I think it probably is. Um, yeah. Napoleon was actually apparently a five uh, foot seven. Five foot seven, which is which above the is average, above the average in <laughs> France, at any rate, and yeah. pretty close to the average in England. Yeah, but Gilray invented little bony. Yeah, and little bony is a diminutive figure. Uh, you know, very dwarfed. But by But that's his great guards, because, it, so. in a
0: way, it just shows the power of these prints to form yeah. perceptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. we still we're still talking about it two hundred years later. One last question on him before we dive in. He was, and and this is, I think, a central dynamic of him because he's. At the same time, everywhere, he has a print for most occasions and for most political uh, circumstances, at least. Then he's invisible as well in the biographical record. He He's a very enigmatic as a, as a figure. And having written about him, did you find that frustrating or liberating? <laughs> Mostly frustrating.
1: I'd, I'd love to know more about what he was doing at particular moments and uh, just who he was friendly with. I think he was extremely discreet which is probably a necessary quality in a journalist who is uh, sometimes under instruction from people who don't want their identities to be released to the rest of the world and would prefer what they're churning out to be thought of as public opinion. I think he probably did spend most of his time with close friends from other walks of life. Mm. He was clearly close to the family of his, his publisher, his main publisher, latterly Hannah Humphrey. And... Seems to have popped down sometimes with Thomas Rowlandson, another caricaturist, uh, sometimes probably just with the local shopkeepers.
0: Well, let's go and try and uh, chase him uh, back to a particular year today. This can be our challenge and we'll see if we can catch glimpses. We're going to talk about various works of his, um, which are significant. But let's begin by asking you um, the question that we always ask of every guest who comes on this podcast. If you could travel back in time to one calendar year. Which year would you pick?
1: Well, I chose the year 1792 because it's a particularly dramatic one uh, in terms of danger to the royal family, the danger of revolution, sudden emergency, uh, and and how a, a caricaturist like Gilray, a political commentator like Gilray, is is going to react during that year and how he manages to survive it,
0: frankly. So uh, it's a wonderful historical context, so we'll be able to talk about that. But for Gilray himself, he's still early-ish on in his career, would you say? But he's he's not, I suppose he's coming, he's got a reputation is the point I'm making. He has established himself as an artist, as a caricaturist, and he is settling into the years that will be enormously productive with him. I know that one thing that's very significant just before this year is when he, he begins to work with Hannah Humphrey pretty much exclusively. And
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, it's from about this time. Mm. 1791 is the last burst of uh, prints for Samuel William Ford, one of his earlier main publishers. And after 1791, he publishes a few prints with a guy called James Aiken. And they're mostly really risky things, possibly things that Hannah didn't want to put her name to. Mm. But this uh, is a
0: professional relationship, isn't it, between, and, and I'm going to get on to the, the subsequent point in a moment, she is the owner of the print shop where his works are being sold and at the foot of the the prince you see that name Humphrey over and over again don't you no, that's it, right she is she is his publisher but at uh, the same time there's a there's a private relationship which is more complicated than we do not know is that correct
1: yeah uh, eventually gilray moves in with her and it would appear that they're acting as business partners. Mm. Uh, they go on holiday together, they spend their Christmases together. It was rumored that at various points they had almost got married. Whether there's a sexual relationship there, we simply do not know. Mm. I mean, Hannah is a powerful woman in her own right and like her sister, a very able business woman. For all I know, the sexual relationship may have been between Hannah and her servant Betty, mm. <laughs> who is mm. another fixture in this shop. But I'd probably put money on it that, that they are, at any rate, very very close friends. But
0: it's an important part of the dynamic for Gilray at this point in his life, isn't it? In 1792, the relationship is settling. He, I mean, he's he's clearly on very good terms with. With hannah humphrey and their, their professional relationship at the very least is um is being simplified he's working for her and he doesn't have any other family he's not been married before no so, and working for
1: her effectively in his case means working for himself uh, because they are as far as one can tell a, a, a partnership which means that he can take responsibility for and control of 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 his plates in a way that he hadn't been able to before which enables him much more clearly to establish a distinct personality as an artist how style becomes consistent you know you can spot a Gilray and even where other people are contributing the ideas he's putting his own mark on 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 everything and and you know, there is a, just a relationship of trust with his publisher that hadn't, hadn't existed previously. Uh, hmm. It's a very interesting turning point in, uh, in, in his career.
0: So let's go to the first of the three scenes we're going to look at. You picked uh, sometime in February or March 1792. And um, we're going to go to Hannah Humphreys' house at 18 Bond Street. And what kind, what What would entice you there? What What's the interest to go there?
1: Well, this may be where Gilray was living. Actually, at this stage, we're not absolutely sure. His father lived in Chelsea. Uh, he was a, a Chelsea pensioner, an injured war veteran who had lost an arm at the Battle of Fontenoy, and Gilray sometimes at any rate lived with with his parents in Chelsea but he probably had a London base quite early on and there's reason to believe that by this time 1792 he's living with with Hannah Humphrey in 18 old Bond Street uh, the Piccadilly end of of Bond Street it's a a tall narrow building um, we think three stories plus an attic story and the ground floor would have been a, a shop, a fairly small, narrow shop, but quite deep. Then Hannah Humphrey and her servant Betty would have been living on the floor above. Gilray would almost certainly have had a workshop, either in the attic or, or up high, where, where he got the best, the best light so that you did minimum strain to your eyes and best light for working in. And maybe, maybe he shared a room with Hannah Humphrey and maybe he didn't. This is, this is one of the enigmas. Mm. Um, We know a little bit about what were we, we know how the, how the, we know what Hannah owned later on, a little bit about how the the shop looked. They're probably these sliding doors, sliding uh, shutters that, that are decorated with prints that are the window display in the shops. Um... We know that Hannah would have, the rooms would have been decorated with shell work made by her sister Elizabeth. Very, very beautiful uh, vases of flowers, actually made out of shells, sculptures of shells, because the original business of the Humphrey family was selling shells for grottos, for collectors and for making shell-work designs uh, and her uh, elder sister Elizabeth was, a, was a, an artist in, in shell-work and then no doubt there were prints on the walls, increasingly prints by Gilray. He puts Hannah Humphrey's address on various um, bits of publicity that he'd produced for a print a little earlier so there's reason to believe that by this stage
0: he was probably living in this shop in Bond Street. Um, Is it quite easy to date I suppose contextually you can always have a go but to date when his particular works were released or is this one of the challenges for someone who's working on him or are they all signed at the bottom with a particular date? Generally, uh, by this stage, there
1: is a there's a publication line at the bottom of the print that gives you a, a precise date of, of release with caricatures that come out every every few days. These dates are generally pretty accurate. They're not always on there, but in order to be able to claim copyright, you had to put your name and address and a date on, on, on the bottom of the print. So you can be pretty precise most of the time about about the date of any particular Gilray.
0: Which in turn takes us to a few of the works that he was um, busy with during this late winter, early spring. And, and it, it is, as you mentioned earlier, such a a charged political backdrop. Do you want to talk about some of the works that Gilray was busy with in February and March of 1792, and maybe how they tallied with political developments. Yeah, you,
1: you, you have a background of the French Revolution, events in France gradually getting more and more out of hand during 1792, and a background of, of reaction to that in, in England in late February, early March, the second part of Thomas Paine's Rights of Man comes out. The second part was actually much, much more radical than the first part. And Paine talks about kings as a bugbear to keep the common people in order and uh, you know, wonders whether they're really necessary especially when they're mad foreigners. And also there's a work called The Jockey Club by Charles Piggott, which comes out, which is a succession of scurrilous biographies of aristocrats and other leading figures and squanderers of public wealth, led by the Prince of Wales, who'd been bailed out, owed huge amounts of money and the country, bailed him out, whereupon he just started borrowing more and more money until the country had to bail him out again. These works begin to circulate in sixpenny editions in huge numbers and finally people begin to notice and get really, really scared. So it's against this backdrop that you have... Gilray's caricatures of the king and queen wildly caricatured. I looked at something something like anti which is a print about the first attempt to do something about the slave trade fell apart in 1791. but in reaction to that failure, Uh, There was a campaign, a public campaign, to discourage the use of West Indies sugar as a protest against the slave trade and to damage those who were profiting from it. So anti-Saccharides depicts the king and queen trying to persuade their rather unwilling daughters to give up the use of sugar. Queen Charlotte is, is telling them how this will help the poor blackamores and the king. The king is always parsimonious to Gilray. He's always a mean bugger and he's uh, how much it will save your poor papa. The queen is wildly caricatured in this print, hideously ugly. The king, as usual, just a gross profile. Uh, with goggle eyes always a feature of the hanoverian royal family
0: i know i'm looking at this this print as we talk and it's the kind of thing i mean it's so striking i mean the, the queen is so strikingly ugly and um the king we must say at this point that king george had been through several episodes of his um famous madness and he's really so <laughs> shown to look quite imbecilic here i mean just in the general british culture how dangerous was it to to do such a thing to um figures of authority the ultimate authority the, this is the uh, the head of the royal family um which i mean we we talk about this riotous freedom of the press which had existed in in britain ever since the time of the glorious revolution whether or not it's quite so um simple as that but um did did gilray have anything to fear by putting out such crude pieces of this
1: well people have got away with it but it's this kind of direct attack on the king and queen is is something pretty new something actually developed in in poetry by john walcott who wrote poems in which he parodied the king's speech patterns and and the sort of what 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 mm. uh, that that gilray picks up uh, repetitious staccato exclamations gilray kind of nicks from walcott but the fact is that nobody really knew. There was there's a building sense that this is getting out of hand. I think uh, amongst um, certainly the religious authorities, the Bishop of London has has been leading a campaign since um, 1787 to suppress the wilder excesses of, uh, of print culture, especially satirical print culture. The Proclamation Society had made it its business to uh, crush prints that it decided were in one way or another. Usually, usually they were going for pornography, but sometimes they were going for other things. Mm. Um, and as this year goes on, So these pressures become more and more intense and just how much you are risking becomes a really, really big issue.
0: (laughs) Okay, and um, if we if we look at these this picture as well, it makes you wonder um, the motivation is. Gilray acting from commercial interest. Is he a political actor who has a political point to make himself or is he acting on behalf of somebody else who wants to use him as some kind of unwieldy weapon to make a cultural point?
1: Haha. Ha. Well, I think uh, those three things can all come into play at different times. Gilray tends not to have a consistent point of view except in terms of the desirability of peace and a certain championing of the common people against the against the great those are often consistent features in his work but he takes a pretty cynical attitude to both sides and at various times he works for both sides you can't always tell when he's being paid but on occasions we know because there's documentary evidence of of instructions from somebody but I think a lot of the time he, he's just a businessman. He's trying. He's discovered that he's funny, that he has a product that he can sell, that he enjoys making, and, and he's trying to be funny. He's selling jokes.
0: Hmm. Is there any, um, in the archives, I know there's been quite a lot of work on George III's correspondence recently, is there any sense that the king was looking at Gilray's pictures or was even aware of the work that was going on? Is there any recorded response?
1: There's not all that much reliably recorded response from the king. I don't think he tends to be above it. However, uh, the Prince of Wales was buying Gilray from about 1784 and has had a more or less complete collection. Uh, At least two of the elder daughters uh, who are depicted in the anti-Saccharides prints have Collections of Gilray, the collection at Strasbourg is one of them, and the collection at Greitz in Germany is, is Princess Elizabeth's. Um, so they are aware of, of what's going on. I, I mean, I, and at times you do get comments from politicians in, in their letters saying they particularly enjoyed something They which is a, it, mostly they take it with a pinch of salt I was going to say that's, that's,
0: that's part of a slightly contrarian um, attitude which still exists today where people enjoy being satirised don't they is, um, yeah. in, even politicians today when they find themselves by Matt or whoever it might be there's a, they might buy it themselves and put it on the wall That's uh, and it's. I think you make the point in the book that this is something that people find strange to or challenging Challenging. So foreigners coming to Britain find it strange that people will enjoy being satirised. Yeah, to
1: somebody from one of the police states in Germany or even somebody from France, it's extraordinary that you can get away with this kind of thing in mm-hmm. England because in the 1780s, it is France is pretty wild, but it's, Germany is still very, very heavily policed and you couldn't possibly publish this kind of thing the times in England when you couldn't earlier on as well. It wasn't too wise to take the piss out of Robert Walpole. But, um, but it's kind of got out of hand <laughs> to, towards the end of the 80s and into the 90s. Mm-hmm. And people are becoming very, very alarmed. But just what you can do. I mean, I've just turned over to a, to a print called Taking Physic or <laughs> The News of the Shooting of the King of Sweden. The King of Sweden, who was one of the leaders of the crusade to, uh, to try to save the French monarchy, had been assassinated. And the print shows the King and the Queen sitting together on the loo with bare bottoms. As Pitt, William Pitt the Prime Minister, comes in. With the terrible news, another monarch done over. Is this Gil- the one
0: where we have the king saying what, what, what again? So the this is the speaker. What,
1: what shot? What,
0: what, what? <laughs> shot, shot,
1: shot. Yeah, exactly. which is straight out of Walcott, really. Yeah, and I love it. He's, Gilray just loves putting demotic, putting the ordinary speech, the man on the street speech, into the mouths of mm. aristocrats. Uh, done, you know, another monarch done yeah. over.
0: Hello, it's Peter here. If this week's episode has inspired you to go on your own search for hidden stories through time, why not try a trip organised by our sponsors ACE Cultural Tours. Covering subjects from archaeology and history, through to music, art and wildlife, ACE have over 60 years of experience in group travel. From tales of smugglers and stonemasons on the Romney Marshes, to cultural exchanges along the Silk Road, there are plenty of departures on offer in the UK, as well as further afield. Each tour is led and hosted by an expert lecturer who can often provide exclusive visits and will help you explore a subject in detail. Following a fantastic year with highlights including a musical cruise along the Danube, Ace are looking forward to more adventures in 2023. To find out more, or to request a copy of Ace's brand new brochure, you can visit their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. One of the good things about this first scene in, in February and March of 1792 is to see, it would be to see him operating or creating on the very edge or the margins of what he's able to get away with. That would be half of the fun. But let's move on to the second one because I know we've got a, a bit more to talk about. And this is a few months later on the 21st of May when there's a proclamation against seditious writing. Do you want to tell us what happened there and who was behind this?
1: Well, it's it's a royal proclamation but the ministry of William Pitt and uh, Grenville uh, have become distinctly alarmed, especially about the proliferation of of pamphlets by Tom Paine, and they try to put a stop to seditious writing. It's pretty vague, and prints probably come within its purview. But initially, uh, the reaction of the printmakers, and Gilray amongst them, is one of... uh, it just sticks two fingers up at the, uh, at the royal proclamation. William Holland, who is a, a former publisher of, of Gilray, and at this time is the most left-wing, the most uh, French-leaning of the of the print sellers, produces a thing called a bugaboo uh, with with George the Third proclamation in Lilliput, I think it is. With, with, Taking the Mickey out of the proclamation, Gilray looks back to the previous proclamation against vice and produces a print called Vices Not uh, Covered by the Current Proclamation, showing avarice with George III and Queen Charlotte. I can't remember how it goes now. Lechery, drunkenness, and each of them represented by one of the royal, the, the king and queen, and then their, their three uh, eldest sons doing debauchery drunkenness and gambling i think is the duke of york and gilray talks about these um recommending these as vices to be looked at rather than those of speaking and thinking which are now considered to be worthy of suppression mm.
0: um, and there's another one called um a voluptu- a voluptuary if i can say it properly and temperance isn't it which is one that people who are familiar with the period may well know it's one of the more famous ones is this the prince, the prince of wales it's a pair of prints in which yeah. uh, temperance uh, enjoying a frugal meal mm. shows
1: george the uh, third eating a boiled egg i think mm. with um and you know, and he's got he's saving his candles it's uh, february and there's no fire in the grate parsimonious mean George III is is the message. And this is contrasted with his eldest son and heir, the Prince of Wales, who's who's feeling thoroughly ill after drinking far too much uh, emblems of gambling, uh, <laughs> cures for um, syphilis uh, lying around on the floor and uh, he's picking his teeth uh,
0: <laughs> we should point out that he was, I think he was known as the Prince of Wales, as in the... Uh, he,
1: later on, he became he, Prince of Wales the, with an H. Yes. Yeah, with, with an yes, H, yeah. As he got it. fatter and fatter and fatter. He started mm-hmm. quite handsome, but... Uh, Rapidly, and he was um, yeah he
0: was at one point four hundred thousand pounds in debt and had to be bailed out as you were saying earlier and this kept was this was a long running theme wasn't it so nice to to see that Gilray was undaunted I suppose
1: well yeah I mean the other thing that he does his immediate response to this is a thing called Sin Death and the Devil which is at once it's a parody of a painting by Hogarth. Uh, showing a moment in Milton's Paradise Lost where uh, uh, sin intercedes between Satan, the devil and death, death being her son. Only Gilray recasts it with William Pitt, the Prime Minister, as death, the Queen as sin and uh, the Lord Chancellor with whom the Prime Minister was currently at odds as, as Satan. And uh, <laughs> it is outrageous, perhaps Gilray's most outrageous treatment of the Queen as sin, <laughs> with her hand over what might be the genitals of the famously asexual uh, Prime Minister. An extraordinary, again, a sort of two-fingered salute to, uh, to, to, to the order not to speak. Um, and uh, also, it's it's a very it's a very very clever print in which he picks little bits of speech out of Milton and applies them brilliantly to the uh, to the situation in because,
0: And that's a really interesting point that we should um, just talk about for a moment, which is because we look at these prints today from twenty twenty two, and our culture is very different to how they were received originally. Do we miss a lot of the, I suppose, the hidden jokes in there, the, the the contemporary significance? This, and and how clever was Gilray in terms of repeating tropes or finding allusions and connections with works of art in the past?
1: Yeah, well, he does it a lot. A lot of what I was trying to do in this book is to try to work out uh, the much debated question of just what the audience was for these prints, and and there's no. There's kind of no simple answer because taking physic with the king and queen on the loo and a one-liner from the king and a one-liner from the prime minister is a pretty easily perceived simple insult to both of, (laughs) to all parties. Very simple joke. A print like Sin, Death and the Devil is a much, much more complicated thing that whether a, it's 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 a puzzle. It only can it can only be deciphered by the well read, but one might remember that Hannah Armfrey's sister had a set of Milton and a set of Pope and a set of Shakespeare on her shelf, so the well read can go quite a long way through reasonably well educated society, but that is a print by the intelligent, for the intelligent, that has a complicated series of jokes and uh, and, and illusions that that you, you know you decipher at your leisure and we can still do it it's still possible to follow his guides to uh, to well-known passages in shakespeare and milton we just don't go to the theater every night as they did in the 18th century uh, and we don't have the same familiarity with a with a corpus of well-known literature that gilray can sort of rely on in in part of his Part of his audience, but uh...
0: but maybe this is one of these glimpses into character that we were talking about. In in lieu of any biographical information, you can you can see him there with this wider kind of cultural interest. Um, he's not two dimensional. This is the point. No, is no. It?
1: he's very multi dimensional. He knows his works of art and takes the piss out of them very happily mm. and he knows, he undoubtedly knows his literature very, very well. You mm. couldn't do it without. And these are not I was saying sometimes there's documentary evidence of other people suggesting ideas to them. But when you get those suggestions the dialogue in them is dire. Um, you know Gilray is, is scintillating and brilliant. and <laughs> He's very, very good at parodying other people's speech Mm. uh and um and and knows his literature and could use it deftly and cleverly it's uh, yeah yeah i mean he cannot other that the he cannot be other than very very clever and and well informed from the evidence of what is in front of you
0: but at the same time he he has this this crudeness doesn't he of um, subjects sometimes so he will take you into the the king's closet whilst he's in the middle of something and that's I suppose in a way if you think of the um, the squeamishness of the Victorians the, the outward cultivation of sensibility that they had and they looked back with horror to Gilray didn't they they thought well, how could someone do
1: such a thing absolutely and this is really misleading because most of the biographical commentary that we have on Gilray comes from 50 years after he died when the sensibility has changed utterly mm. and Gilray is a figure of of horror to the to the prim and proper Victorian who comes of the out of the post-Napoleonic world. The French Revolution changed everything a huge change in sensibility and uh, A huge clamp down on free speech, essentially. Different judgments about what's proper, what's allowable. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Gilray tends to speak with an 18th century voice. The 18th century mixed the extremely crude with the extremely fine in a rather fascinating sort of way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Gilray, yeah, he uses crudeness for shock effect. Um, yeah. The king's shitting is a favourite
0: subject. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's let's characterise those first two scenes. So we have Gilray at work um, uh, on the edge of what's, uh, what's permissible, should we say. We have this proclamation, which is an attempt to quell um, some of the more vociferous attempts to undermine the monarchy. This, of course, is at the time of the French Revolution where Wordsworth and people like that saying it to be alive was very heaven there's great um nervousness in britain about what's going to happen there if there's going to be some imitation of what's happened in france and then if we move to your third scene which is december of 1792 what takes us there? Well, isn't?
1: in between, we've had the uh, attack on the Tuileries and the, and the massacre of the Swiss guards.
0: Mm.
1: We've had the September massacres in prisons and aristocrats in, in, in Paris. And we have had an invitation to the, from the French, uh, a promise of support to other oppressed peoples around the borders of France, particularly the Belgians, they had in mind uh, under Austrian uh, domination. But in Britain, we're particularly worried about the Irish, and this looks like an invitation to, uh, to Irish dissidents to look to French support in their struggle for freedom against Britain. The French monarchy is increasingly under threat. And by December, the king's on trial. William Pitt, who had been unwilling to go to war with France because, because Britain was a commercial country and it was making money through peace and nobody really wanted a big war uh, except the King. George III, I think, is distinctly supportive of monarchies in general. So there's this background and uh, there's real fear now, fear of insurrection in in Britain. And a man called John Reeves had set up uh, what became known as the Crown and Anchor Society after the pub where it met, a society for loyalists to show their support for the existing constitution of Great Britain. and um
0: this is almost like the counter-reformation movement it's the it's the bounce back
1: counter revolution movement Mm. at any rate it is Mm. a bounce back in which all through provincial britain um the forces of law and order the church which had been destroyed in france and you know is distinctly worried in england and all those who have vested interests in, uh, uh, in in keeping the order as it is uh, get very, very defensive. But of course, they rally those, you know, the French who got rid of religion by that. <laughs> uh, the, a lot of people in England who are shocked by that uh, and the excesses of France you know, don't necessarily look too good here. And on the whole, for all its faults, the British constitution in the 18th century had been a permeable, kind of generally acceptable thing. And a lot of ordinary people are quite happy to stand by it. But the society uh, invites secret denunciations of uh, those who are considered to be shaking things up and more or less anybody on the left wing is is denounced. Uh, and this includes all the print sellers. You know, there are infamous print shops. Suddenly print shops are, uh, uh, are under scrutiny and they name print shops in uh, in um, Oxford Street which means William Holland in Piccadilly, which means Samuel William Fawes, and in Bond Street, which means Hannah Humphrey and Gilray as being particular, particular targets. And late in December, um, William Holland is, is arrested uh, and ends up in Newgate, uh, where his wife dies, uh, And indeed, his best artist probably catches jail fever, which will eventually kill him. Holland is joined there by James Ridgway, who is the main left-wing weak bookseller, who had been another, another employer of Gilray.
0: So what does this mean for Gilray himself? Does he respond in any way which we can our finger on today
1: <laughs> you can never put your finger on anything with Gilray what he does is to respond with a series of prints signed done by James Gilray pro bono publico for the public good some of them well I'm just looking at one which shows uh French uh, revolutionaries as cannibals eating chopped up uh, bits of aristocrat, which is uh, a response to the September massacres, and on one level uh, is a demonstration of revulsion at uh, what is happening in France, except that it's just a bit too over the top (laughs) to be taken seriously, and so Is it criticism of what's happening in France? Or is it criticism to the overstated reaction to what is happening in France? Uh, He's a bit like that all the way through. There's uh, another print showing uh, the Prime Minister addressing John Bull. A print called John Bull bothered voices in both ears. John Bull is standing there with Tom Paine's pamphlet in in one pocket and and a loyalist uh, pamphlet advising John Bull that he'd better stick to the old British constitution in the other prime minister is pointing at a flock of geese flying in and um Telling him, "They're coming, Johnny. They're coming. The French are coming, and he, the wild Hibernians are throwing off their trousers and becoming sans culottes, people without trousers." And John Bull saying, "Well, me, master, I know I'm only supposed to do what you tell me to do, uh, but uh, far as I can see, there's just a flock of geese out there, and couldn't we just try to be friends with them?" And it's um. <laughs> <laughs> this great moment when Johnny William Pitt tells him that they're going to make aristocrat pies out of us, and of course they're going to make aristocrat pies out of William Pitt, the Prime Minister. Maybe they're not going to make aristocrat pies out of John Bull, and there's a there's a sort of irony in the uh, in, in and. <laughs> The threat is to the aristocrats and not to the ordinary people. And Gilray's appeal is always partly to the ordinary people. And John Bull, the yokel, tends to speak common sense.
0: It's, but it's. I think that's such an important point because he has this great ability to. He's a popularist in a way, isn't he? he can channel. I don't know why I found myself thinking about Gilray quite a lot through the through the Brexit debate because he was. He was there in that character of John Bull, this kind of pragmatic, xenophobic, you know, kind of, do, do you know what I mean when I'm grasping at this? There's well, the John Bull who voted for Brexit certainly has all
1: the xenophobic qualities of uh, of, 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 a, of a Gilray John Bull, uh, I think, um, yeah. Gilray himself with a huge vested interest in trade in Europe wouldn't have been voting Brexit but <laughs> mm, mm. but
0: what you're saying here is maybe this was quite nimble positioning from him that he's trying to be nebulous he's trying not to be partisan to the point where he might be arrested he's yeah, trying to uh, sidestep uh, things
1: also I think if you can appeal to both sides uh, in one print, you can get both sides to buy the print. Um, so <laughs> a, you know the, the enigmatic Gilray who goes both ways is also quite a commercial Gilray, and 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 there are two sides to the story. So there's a certain truth in the in, in the vending both ways. But in, in today's but,
0: polarized yeah. world, where we have. You know, in, in many democracies, you have two sides fighting and screaming against each other all the time. That makes Gilray quite a strange character, very difficult to place.
1: Yeah, it does. He's, he, is, he is very slippery and, and, and he's, he sees both sides of, of a story. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly in this period, he's, he's suspicious of the excessive reaction of the reactionaries and loyalists. But at the same time, he's disappointed by what's been happening in France. Uh, to begin with, uh, he greeted the, the fall of the Bastille with a, with a print that um, was dedicated to the French people from their you know, sincere admirer, James Gilray. So he liked Wordsworth at first thought the revolution was the most wonderful thing that had happened and wow his cynical side is gradually fighting well let's talk about his commercial side as well you've mentioned (laughs) it
0: um a little bit it's been there all the way through he was um a working artist and he had to pay his way did he become a very wealthy person through all of this work i mean he was very prominent in culture he Obviously had some kind of cachet there. Um, today, I don't know if it seems um, exaggerated because we're so familiar with his work. Um, but at the time, I know he was very popular as well. Did he become a very rich and wealthy man?
1: Uh, he didn't become very rich and wealthy, but he was he was reasonably well off. He had quite a lot of money invested in the funds. Hannah Humphrey was worth about ten thousand when she died. He was he was worth less than that. But then. He is partly her, I suspect. So, yeah, uh, you don't. I mean, caricatures are are quite cheap things. Um, You have to sell a lot of them to make a lot of money. And he worked very hard. uh, But he wasn't wasn't working on a very, very high-priced product. But he was successful um, and, uh, yeah, died comfortably off. Well, we
0: we can't do any better than guide people to the book because the, there's so many of the prints in here. They're all contextualized. There's so much about the period as well, about the people um, that he uh, goes after and those who maybe supported him. Um, so it's a great slice of cultural and uh, visual history here. But I do have one more question before we conclude, and that's the one we we always end with, which is if you could have an object from this year, 1792, as a memento of this conversation today, is there anything that you would like in particular?
1: Yeah, well, I could have taken any number of Gilray's prints, but I thought what I would steal is that at around this moment, Gilray gave Hannah Humphrey a a fire screen that consisted of double-sided portraits or double-sided caricatures. We don't know exactly what it looked like that he had painted, and I would dearly love to have that actually last heard of in the Lake District in the 1960s and if anybody can tell me where it is I'd love to see it but for the purposes of this program I shall remove it from uh, the uh, fireside of uh, Hannah Humphrey's house in Bond Street and, uh, and take it back with me.
0: Well you never know who might be listening to it this might be the first time we have the possibility of actually finding a thing so if there's anyone in the Lake District listening and something in your house matches description, do do let us know. Um, All that remains to be said is it's been really, really interesting talking about Gilray, someone I've long been fascinated by. It's a wonderful work, and thank you very much for taking the time to tell us all about it. Well, thank you. It's been a massive pleasure. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Tim Clayton about his sumptuous new book. It's called James Gilray, A Revolution in Satire. And it's surely going to be the authoritative work on the fascinating artist for some time to come. Do check it out. And if you look at our website, tttpodcast.com, you can have a look at some of the images that we spoke about in the episode today. So I hope you enjoyed listening. We'll be back with more very soon. But from me for now, that's it. Goodbye.